Uh, if you've read ahead or are familiar with Genesis, you know that we come to a chapter that is made up predominantly by a genealogy. And something we hold to as a church is that all of God's word is authoritative. All of God's word is sufficient. Uh, every dot and tittle and phrase and word is inspired and breathed out and the perfect word of creator God, and that includes genealogies. And so if we affirm that as a church, I think we should honor the reading of the word of God this morning by standing together. So I want us to stand together as we indeed honor this as God's living, breathing, and active word. You'll follow along with me beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. May God bless the reading of his holy word this morning. You may be seated. I am the fifth 
William in a line of William Clarties. Uh, the first one being William Elijah Clardy, who was my great-great-grandfather. My uh, first son is named after him, William Elijah. So I go by Nathan. My name is William Nathaniel, if you're, any of you are confused by that. Uh, so I'm the fifth in a line of William Clardy's. Uh, the last uh, one of my grandfathers to not be named William was a man by the name of John Washington Clardy. He was my great-great-great-grandfather. Um, and I have a, a letter here that he wrote to William Elijah in 1922. I just want to share a little bit of this with you. Uh, this is quite a long letter, but a, a portion of this. He says, I wrote yesterday and left out many things, and one of them most important is my conversion. While I was living with my brother when the war came, I was a sinner and became interested in my soul's salvation, and I would go off to myself and pray or try to pray, and my prayers all fell to the ground. I could not get any relief, and I went on that way until after I married and went into the army. Uh, he goes on to mention how he was stationed at Fort, in Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1862, and a revival came to town, and he says he could hear in the distance men getting religion, and he wanted religion. Uh, he goes on to say, um, So one night, while there was a little snow on the ground, I went out on a little vacant lot, brushed the snow off a little, and got down to pray, and I prayed a little. And I came to the part where I thought there was no chance for me that I was a lost sinner without God and without hope in the world. Then everything turned dark as midnight, and that instant, that still small voice spoke peace to my soul, and I was happy. Two or three days later, I was baptized in the Arkansas River. He goes on to complete the letter there. I love this. Uh, genealogies are fascinating. They're profound. I know some of you like to study genealogies. Uh, what is in a genealogy, though? Well, when we think about our family history, really, we're just considering where we came from. I'm proud to say that I'm one of, uh, of six Williams in a line of Williams, and, and, and they loved the Lord. They served the Lord. Uh, we come to this genealogy this morning, and there is something more profound, more supernatural that is taking place here in Genesis chapter 5. We see here in the text that God's plan of blessing for humanity, though frustrated by the fall, will be restored through the seed of the woman. If you'd look with me there at the first few verses, before Moses gets into the genealogy of Adam through the line of Seth, uh, he introduces us to what is called the book of generations of Adam. Now, we do not know for sure what this book is, what this manuscript is. We can assume that whatever is included in it uh, would potentially include this genealogy that we read together uh, this morning. And in the second part of verse 1, there into verse 2, we, we read something that should sound quite familiar to us. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. This should sound familiar because we've read similar words already twice in Genesis, back in chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, we saw this also at the beginning of the section there in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
And so what we see here, again, is very similar language. In structure, what we see here in these two verses in chapter 5 is more like that of chapter 2. But in content, it reflects what we see there in chapter 1, uh, verse 27 and 28, talking about the blessing and the command to be fruitful and multiply. And although here verse 2 of chapter 5 doesn't mention the, the being fruitful and multiply, uh, it does indeed mention the blessing that the Lord put upon them. And the, the genealogy itself is an illustration of the fulfillment of that very blessing. Uh, that they are indeed multiplying and filling the earth. Uh, something else that's interesting here, you see there in verse 3, it, it speaks of Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. The writer is communicating something to us here very important. Adam and Eve created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, as image bearers. Now the seed of Adam and Eve, all of the human race throughout time and space are also image bearers, created in the likeness of God. We have said time and time again in this sermon series that we as the church value life from the moment of conception to the grave because we, above all of creation, are created in the likeness of God. As we read through the passage, though, as we get then to the genealogy itself, I hope you kind of picked up on a pattern here. The writer uh, uses a, a pattern throughout. Uh, he kind of breaks away from that from time to time, as we'll note here in a moment. But I want you to notice the structure of the genealogy. Uh, he mentions the name of a man who lived a certain amount of years, and then he fathered a son. And then he says that that man lived a certain amount of years after that, having sons and daughters. Then it lists how long he lasted in his lifespan in its entirety. And then it says, then he died. Uh, lest we think here that the writer is just giving us a useless list of names. Uh, again, there's something more profound, something more supernatural happening here. I love what one commentator said. He said, the writer is doing something more than mechanically copying a barren list of names. Uh, the goal of the biblical genealogy, the genealogies that we find throughout Scripture, is to track the line of the seed, the seed of promise that we saw earlier in chapter 3, where God promised this one who would come from the woman and would crush the head of the serpent, who would destroy sin and death and break the curse once and for all. This genealogy also serves another purpose for us here as we walk through the narrative, the story of the book of Genesis. We've come to the end of the first section of Genesis. We have creation, we have fall, we see the outworking of the fall as Cain kills his brother Abel, we see sin in the world, and now this genealogy serves as a transition to the next part of the story, namely the flood narrative. The story of Noah and the ark and the flood. And so if you notice at the end of chapter 5, verse 32, the, the writer breaks the structure of the outline of, the, of the, the genealogy here. And all he mentions of Noah is that he lived, uh, was 500 years old when he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, this genealogy does not come to completion until later in chapter 9, Verse 28, where it says there at the end of chapter 9 of Genesis, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so this genealogy serves as a launching pad then into the story of the flood, Noah and the ark. 
And so this story continues on through chapter 9, even into chapter 10, then when we see the descendants, the generations, the genealogy of Noah and his sons. We then fast forward to chapter 11, where in verse 26, we have another genealogy that's listed there. And in verse 26, we're introduced to a man by the name of Abram. Verse 26 of chapter 11, it says, When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Why is Abram important? Well, he would become Abraham. And just a chapter later, God calls Abraham and promises to bless him and his family and to bless the nations through his seed. Abram is the one who falls in the line of the seed. And so the story continues, this genealogy, the story of the line of the seed of the woman, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Uh, we fast forward again to another genealogy in Numbers chapter 26. Uh, where here in verses uh, 19 through 22, we are, uh, uh, where our attention is, is drawn to the line of Judah, the sons of Judah. We know that Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. We fast forward again to a very obscure little genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth. You most likely know the story of Ruth, this Gentile widow who is redeemed by her kinsman redeemer Boaz. And at the end of the story of Ruth, again, we have this, this little uh, tiny genealogy in the last few verses of Ruth chapter 4. In verse 18, it says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, who is the husband of Ruth. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Fast forward again to Jeremiah 23, where we are told that David's line will be established forever, that his kingdom and his throne will be established forever through the promised one, the seed of the woman. And if we think that the genealogies are just for the Old Testament, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 3 where Luke gives us the genealogy. Now, there are two genealogies that we see in the Gospels. One is in Matthew. Matthew, he begins with Abraham, and, and he descends down to uh, Jesus. Here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, he begins with Jesus and works backwards. And if you look there at chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, you see these names. All the way to verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of Seth, the son of Noah, the son of Shem, the son of Abraham, the son of Boaz, the son of David. This is the line of the seed. And so throughout the pages of Scripture, these genealogies that we oftentimes skip over in our Bible reading plans is just a list of common names, useless names, is telling us something profound we see in these genealogies the faithfulness of the God who keeps promises from generation to generation. We see the mercy of God in the midst of a fallen world because we are all sons and daughters of the fall. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We are all descendants of the curse. Joel Beakey is the president of a Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, and I love what he says about the genealogy of Christ. Listen to this. He says, The Holy Spirit wants us to know that Jesus' family history includes wicked men, prostitutes, 
you look at the Matthew genealogy, he includes Rahab there, the prostitute, and other notorious sinners. The sinless Lord of glory was willing to descend from notably sinful forebearers. Beaky goes on to say, Christ's genealogical register is a record of our guilt, our shame, our lost state, our origin, our humiliation, and it raises the question, who can break the terrible cycle of sin? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Jesus broke the repeating cycle of human sin by identifying with and saving wretched sinners like us. Praise be to God. This is the heart. This is the purpose. This is the goal of the genealogies of Scripture. And so we return then to Genesis chapter 5. We consider this overarching grand purpose of the genealogies of Scripture, but there's also something else here that the writer is communicating to us here in Genesis chapter 5 that I want us to consider as we, uh, we come then to the latter half of the sermon this morning. When we study the Word of God, we want to read it well and interpret it well. We want to find what the meaning of the text is. We don't want to read into the text our own ideas. We don't want to speculate about things. And we want to find the theme, the meaning, the main idea, if you will, of the text. And this is easier to do in things like the epistles, the, the letters, where the writer will say things like, I am writing these things to you so that... He tells you what the main idea is, but when we come to narrative, when we come to the story of Scripture, when we come to genealogies, it's a lot harder to find the meaning of the text. What is the main idea? What is the purpose? So there's a couple things that we can do to help us understand the narrative of Scripture. One is to look for repetition, words that the writer uses over and over again, phrases that the writer uses over and over again. We can also look at the structure of the story and look for unique things that stand outside of the structure. And this is helpful for us this morning because we see both of those things happening here in the genealogy. And so again, the writer is communicating something to us very specific. And the first thing that we see is this, that death is coming. Spiritual death is already the reality for each of us who are here today. Every person who is born into this world is already spiritually dead, but physical death is something that will come later. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they were spiritually dead, but God in his gracious forbearance allowed that physical death to be, to be uh, held for just a moment, but they died. The descendants of Adam and Eve died. Each of us who are here today will experience death. And we know that the writer is emphasizing this in a phrase that he uses eight times in chapter 5. Did you catch it? Eight times the writer says this, and he died. Just as we are the image bearers of God through the seed of Adam, we also too bear death, the the, the curse and the promise of the fall that Adam would return to the dust is the reality for each of us today. This is something that's implicit or understood in other genealogies that they die, but here the writer tells us he wants to highlight and emphasize the outworking of the fall that death is the result of the curse. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all 
sin. This is what we call original sin or our sin nature. We are born sinners. We are born in the fall. We are of the seed of Adam. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because at our nature, at our heart, at our core, we are sinners. And because of that, death is coming. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said this of Adam, by a man came death. He also says there in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. And so just as quickly as we see humans multiplying and filling the earth here in Genesis 5, do we see them falling away and returning to the dust. Death came to them, death will come to us, lest the Lord tarries. And yet, as we have seen throughout just the first few chapters of Genesis, there is a glimmer of hope. There is hope for life this morning in the midst of this chapter that is full and laden with death. Another reason the writer speaks of death in regards to each of these fathers is because there is one, Enoch, in verses 21 through 24, who apparently escapes death. And hopefully as I'm talking about this and saying all the descendants of Adam died, you're thinking to yourself, well, what about Enoch? Didn't he escape death? And that is indeed what we see there. You see in verse 24, it says of Enoch, he was not. This phrase can be used poetically to speak of death and in the sense of, uh, and, and they were no more. But because he attaches to it the phrase, for God took him, we, we know that he's speaking of something different here. If you were to take a Bible concordance and look up the phrase, for God took him, you would be sent on a direct line to the prophet Elijah, who we know passed from this life into the next in a chariot of fire. He did not experience this physical death. And so this, too, is what we see happening with Enoch. Enoch left this life and went into the next and did not experience death. And again, we see hope. We see a promise of life to be found in the midst of the fall. And as the original readers are reading the words that Moses has penned, they see that death does not have the final say. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, I just mentioned earlier, it says there that as in Adam all die, but the verse goes on to say this, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There is life to be found this morning. There is hope. There is relief. There is rest to be found this day in Christ. This relief, this rest is spoken of there in verse 29 when Lamech, the father of Noah, prays over Noah. And we'll, we'll touch on this more next week and when we consider the life of Noah. But it says there, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us Relief, or the word there could be translated as rest. There's a sense that each generation is hoping that their seed is the promised one. That they're clinging to the promise of the one who will come and bring redemption in the midst of this fallen world. And Lamech's prayer is, Lord, let it be this one. It would not be Noah, though. It would not be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, or David. There was one who was better who would come. And the passing of Enoch from this life into the next, there's something important here that we have to note. This is not some isolated chance event where he just happened to escape death. It's not like God is sitting on his throne and there's a 
lottery ball machine next to him where he from time to time when he gets the urge pulls out a name and says well today this person doesn't get to experience death that's not what's happening here his passing from this life to the next in such a way is dependent on something and again it's there in the text it's mentioned twice verse 22 and verse 24 Enoch walked with God Later in chapter 6, we'll see the same thing mentioned of Noah. Chapter 6, verse 9, it says of Noah that Noah walked with God. This walking with God is something that we've already addressed in the garden itself. In chapter 3, verse 8, when Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the presence of the Lord, and in that place where they had fellowship and unity with the Lord. Walking with God plays an important role in the story of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, God tells Abraham to walk before me and be blameless. In Genesis chapter 48, verse 15, Jacob on his deathbed, when he blesses Joseph, says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Jacob gives testimony to his fathers walking with the Lord. In Malachi chapter 2, there's an expectation that's communicated of the priest of Israel to walk with God. There's also an expectation that the people of God, the nation of Israel, in a general sense, walk with God. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses told the people to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments. But there's also in Scripture the this sense that every human being is responsible to walk with God. We see this in Micah 6. We see this with Adam and Eve in the garden pre-fall, that they were responsible to obey the command of God to walk in fellowship and unison with him. And so we're taught here that walking with God is the only way to life. That there is a personal relationship to be had with the living God after the fall. But this walking with God is dependent on faith. Walking with God comes by faith alone. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We looked at Hebrews 11 last week to consider the faith of Abel. I want us to see here then As the writer of Hebrews here in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter speaks of the faith of Enoch. In Hebrews 11 verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. So the writer here affirms that Enoch was taken from this life into the next. He did not have to experience death, and he attributes it not to Enoch's propensity for good, not to Enoch's ability to attribute to the kingdom of God, not to Enoch's good works, but by faith alone. It goes on to say there in verse 5, now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. This word commended was used earlier in verse 4 in speaking of Abel, where it says, through which he, Abel, was commended as righteous. 
We know of Abraham that he believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so it is by faith that Abel and Enoch and Abraham receive and are commended to have pleased God, that they receive the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is imparted to them by faith alone. Verse 6, it goes on to say, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Restoration to the relationship between God and man that was broken in the garden, again, according to Hebrews 11, is found by faith alone. And so we affirm that saving faith is not just a belief in the existence of God. So the writer there in Hebrews 11, verse 6, said they must believe that he exists. He's communicating something more there than just simply saying, I believe in God. We, we affirm and believe that Scripture teaches that saving faith is a belief in, in a God-man who came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died on a cross and rose victoriously over sin and death. That belief in that gospel truth Faith in Christ alone brings about salvation. But for Enoch and those who live before the coming of Messiah, they are most certainly putting their faith in this one true sovereign God who has promised deliverance by a seed. Enoch's faith is in a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who would deliver one day redemption And so oftentimes people will say, how were the people of the Old Testament saved if Christ had not yet come and died on the cross? Well, the answer, according to Hebrews 11, is by faith. Just as we in our day look back in faith to a Messiah who has come and conquered sin and death, so too do those of the Old Testament look forward in faith to a Messiah who would come. The promise of the seed And so it is impossible this morning to walk with God and to please God and to find life eternal without first possessing faith. This gift that God has given us according to Scripture. So we affirm this morning that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we know this because Scripture alone teaches us that. So practically then, what does it look like to walk with God? For those of us this morning who have that saving faith, that saving knowledge as Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what does it look like to walk with God as Enoch did and Noah did and Abraham and Isaac did? Well, the picture of walking with someone is very helpful. It's very self-explanatory. Scripture really helps us here to understand what it means to be a Christian, to live the Christian life, to walk with God. When you walk with someone, you are in close proximity to them. You are in step with them. You are headed in the same direction. There is fellowship and relationship and communion there. And so in faith, we not only have the ability to have fellowship with God, but we find that our desire is for God. 
Our desire changes from self in this world and created things to fixing our desire and our thoughts and our attitudes on creator God. We have a desire to live according to his ways. We have a desire to let him lead in every step of our lives. I was listening to a conversation this past week about certain celebrities who were born and raised and reared in the church who eventually would fall away from the church, only proving that they never truly had saving faith and how oftentimes they say the thing that led them away from the church was understanding who the God of the Bible is and particular thinking that he is an egomaniac, the idea that God in his existence and in creation that everything exists for his glory alone and these people will say, well, God is just an egomaniac. I want nothing to do with that religion. I don't know about you this morning, but when I think about the nature and the character and the attributes and the beauty and the glory and the working of sovereign creator God in this universe, it does not make me want to flee from him and run from him. It makes me want to know him more. It makes me want to submit to his ways more. Now in this Christian life, as we walk with God, we do not always have the desires of the new self. We do not always walk in perfect step with the Lord. We are prone to wander. We are prone each and every day to fall into sin. But if we have true saving faith this morning, we will have that desire and that longing each and every day to walk with God. We walk with God when he is on all of our thoughts. Every area of our lives is marked by a thought of him and who he is and what he has done. That we don't just give him our attention and our affections on Sunday morning, but every moment of every day is consumed by a thought of him. When we wake in the night, when we eat, when we work, when we play, when our situations and circumstances change, it is consumed by a thought of him and his glorious nature and his glorious work on our behalf to redeem us. We walk with God when we fall into sin and we find ourselves not being able to rest until we are once again in step with his ways, in accordance with his word and his law. Having a heart of contrition that we spoke about in the penitential psalms, not being broken over sin over the threat of being caught, but being broken over sin because we genuinely know that our sin is an offense against a holy God. A brokenness over things that we have done that displease him and a desire to give him full view and full reign of our lives so that we might conform more and more to his will and his ways each and every day. We have an eagerness to give up anything that hinders our relationship with him, be it technology or social media or uh, maybe a book that you find yourself reading that when you read it, it causes your thoughts to wander to the old self and not the new and not hesitating to throw that book in the garbage. Or maybe you're a new believer and you find that the friendships you've had your entire life, when you're with those people, you look more like the old self than the new. And you do not hesitate to cut off even the longest relationship so that you might walk in step with your master. We walk with God when we are aware of his presence every moment of our lives. 
that we know that our thoughts and our words and our actions and all that we do are in his view. And just as we might guard our words when we're around a certain friend who disapproves of a certain topic, maybe it's with the family over the holidays, and you don't bring up politics because you know Uncle Ted really doesn't like to go there. He disapproves of that, that every moment of our lives we want to do only those things that the Lord approves of. We want to please him in all that we say and do. And we say with Paul, whether we eat or drink, may it all be to the glory of God. Living in such a way where our desire to please him alone is instinctive. We walk with God when we surrender all of our life to him. That our prayer would be for our purpose and our identity and our satisfaction and our delight to be found in him and him alone. Knowing him by his word, walking in obedience to his word each and every day, in step with his spirit, abiding in his son throughout every moment of every day. May this be said of us. May we be husbands and wives and children Families, a church who walks with God, that our sole desire would be to exalt the name of Christ in this day. The message of Genesis 5 is quite simple this morning. Death has come into this world. And death is coming for each of us, but by the promise of the seed, we know that death will lose its sting when we put our faith and trust in Christ alone as Lord and Savior. I wonder this morning if you have put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus as Lord. If you've repented and turned from your sin and and made him master and Lord of your life. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. I'll be here at the front in a moment if you'd like to come and talk with me about what it means to become a follower of Christ, to walk with God in this life. One of our deacons will be here at the side. We would love to talk with you and pray with you, but let's respond this morning as the Lord's Spirit moves in this place.